I think I'm going to shorten the reading tonight. I think we'll look at um, Numbers chapter 10, and we'll take the first 10 verses. So the, the book of Numbers chapter 10 breaks out into two portions. Verse 1 through 10 is the business of the silver trumpets, which we'll look at. And then from 11 onward, this is the first time that Israel moves out. They've been stationary, I want to say for a year. They've been stationary for a year. And this is their four, first movement after all of the construction of the tabernacle and so on. And then subsequent that, in chapter 11, we're going to see some infidelity in, um, in Israel. But um, let's just take the first 10 verses. Um, where are we? There we are. Numbers 10, verse 1, God's holy word. The Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, Make yourself two trumpets of silver, or hammered work, you shall make them. You shall use them for summoning the congregation, for having the camp set out. Uh, when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to the doorway of the tent of meeting. Yet if only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall assemble before you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. When you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown for them to set out. When convening the assembly, however, you shall, set, you shall blow without sounding an alarm. The, priests, the priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that they may be remembered before the Lord, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness in your appointed feasts and on the first day of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifice of your peace offerings. They shall be as a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. We pray that we would have used it as we call it the Lord's Day, that it would have been dedicated unto your glory, Jesus Christ, and you would edify, build us up into your blessed image, O God. Help us tonight, Lord, consider your truth as you placed it here in this particular section of Scripture, that we would rightly divide it, and we would labor with all that is in us to understand your word, to cherish it in our hearts, and to practice the lessons uh, in our lives. All to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's put this, this chapter in context with what we just read um, last in the last chapter. And so in the last chapter, we have um, two visible presentations of God abiding with his people. One, the pillar of cloud in the daytime and the pillar of fire at the night. And in both of those visible presentations, we said it was either, I think in those it's technically a, a theophany, in some others perhaps technically a Christophany, but some manifestation of God's abiding presence. And obviously the, the cloud is that it can be seen in the daytime. And so the people would be able to look up. It's over the tabernacle. You remember the people of God are, are, are told in the earlier chapters to set themselves up in the form of a rectangle. 
with three tribes in the front and the back and then on the two sides and then with the tabernacle in the middle and the Levitical families all around the tabernacle. So it's very orderly. And now here, when we come to verse 11, which we won't look at tonight, they set out in order. Even with the trumpet sounds, they're being told to set up in order, to break down in order, and to march out in order. But when the people of God were to look up, they were to look at the center of the camp. And the notion is that the life of the believer revolves around uh, the presence of God, God with us, Emmanuel. And then they can see the presence of God with them in the daytime, uh, telling them God is with them, God is with them to protect them, to provide for them, all of those things. So it's meant for the people of God's assurance, comfort. And then the same is true at night. And then when the people of God look up at nighttime, they obviously can't see a cloud, they see the fire. And the, the, it's the same lesson that God is with them. And the primary lesson there of both the cloud in the day and the fire at night is that God is always with us. This is one of my favorite truths that Jesus espouses before he ascends to the Father in Matthew chapter 28. He says, and lo, I am what? I'm with you even to the end of the age. So this is a, this is a Hebrews 13. God is always with us. We don't always feel that he's with us. We don't always see like this sense. But even by faith, sometimes our faith is very weak. But we don't, we don't live by our feelings. Um, even if our faith is weak, our God is always with us. And the notion is that God reveals himself visibly. That's the, the previous chapter. What we come to here with the trumpets is God is revealing himself to his people audibly. So one to the eyes, as it were, and these sights and, and, and so on. And then now here audibly uh, with, with the trumpet blasts, God is declaring all of the things that we just talked about that he is with his people, he's guiding his people, he's protecting his people. And this is used both as a mnemonic device for them to remember their God and as if God needed a mnemonic device that he would remember his people. But sometimes the Bible does speak like that. So here we go from the visible presence of God to the audible directions of God. And we said it last week, and I don't want to go, I don't want to belabor the point, but it's worth pointing out. With these various trumpet blasts and so on, the number of them, the people making them, and then I'm going to argue that there's a long blast and a short blast seen in the Hebrew stem form and all of these kind of things, that these things are only rightly understood as they're explained by the Word of God. Otherwise, if they're, if they're not explained by the Word of God, the people of God would not understand what they mean. So that teaches us again and again, even implicitly, that the word of God is primary. These sights and these sounds depend upon the word of God for explanation. The same is true we've mentioned for the sacraments. The water of baptism has to be explained by the word of God. The bread and the wine of the administration of the supper has to be explained by the word of God. So word is primary. These sights of the clouds and the fire have to be explained by the word of God. And likewise, what these trumpets are, who blows them, why they blow them, when they blow them, all explained by the, by the word of God. It teaches the people of God then and now that the word of God is primary. That's what's being uh, taught. And um, I would argue principally, this is going to be, I hope everyone can come out to the Reformation uh, night uh, event, which is obviously Tuesday, October 31st. It's at 6 o'clock. 
and we're going to have a dinner, and then there will be a little talk, maybe 15 minutes, and then we're going to sing some hymns, I think, six or seven hymns. But, but the subject of the talk will be the Protestant Reformation giving the Bible back to the laity, to the people, but particularly the Bible in the common language. And so in, in a language that they could understand, so that they would know God and they could obey God, that we read from the, the catechism. And then so when we come here, these particular sounds are explained to God's people in a language that they could understand. So this is the principle of the primacy of the word. But another principle that the Protestant Reformation speaks about, it's really behind the, 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 the doctrine of sola scriptura. It's the accessibility of the scriptures. That's why the, the early reformers, the pre-reformers, Wycliffe, Huss, and the like, uh, believed that the Bible should be given in the common or the vulgar tongue. So we understand that that's even implicit with the explanation of the sign um, to, to know what God is saying to his people and thus to be able to um, obey. Now, I mentioned the mnemonic device. It means a memory device. When I learned Greek and Hebrew, which I know baby Greek and Hebrew, baby, baby, baby Greek and Hebrew, and even the Bible, I use mnemonic devices. Um, there was a group called The Who, who had a song, My Generation. Genao is to beget, to have children. And I, I don't know why I use that song, My Generation, to remember Genao. But that always stuck in my head. And so if you look at verse 9, part of the reason for these trumpet blasts it is one as a mnemonic device for... Uh, for the people, so that the people would remember when they hear the, the sound of the trumpet that God is with them. And then in verse 10, the, the mnemonic device is actually applied to God. And this is an anthropomorphism in that God is going to be reminded that he is their God and he has made all of these promises. God doesn't need to forget. So when God applies this mnemonic device to himself in this anthropomorphism, it's a way of further assuring us that he doesn't forget us. Does that make sense? So one, we are reminded God is with us. And then two, we're reminded that God is reminded as it were. God cannot forget. I've mentioned before there is a heresy. It's current. It's called open theism. But it's nothing new under the sun. It's a heresy that says God learns. He has ignorance, and then by observation, he comes to understand and to learn. That's not the God of the Bible. Um, God does not learn. God is not ignorant. He knows everything. Read our Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1, paragraph one, 2, with the Bible proofs. God does not learn the way that we do. So the primacy of the word. The primacy of the word is also seen. Look at verse, uh, verse 1. This particular chapter, if you've been reading through the book of Numbers, you see that God the Holy Spirit is keen to record this uh, formulaic uh, phrase that the Holy Spirit uh, inspires uh, Moses to say and to write almost on every new section. The Lord, this is Jehovah, this is Yahweh in all caps, the God, and this is the covenantal name of God. Um, so you have Elohim, God the creator, uh, God the sustainer, that kind of God. And then you have this covenantal name, I am that I am. This is the father to the son, the husband to the bride. It's a filial, it's a relational idea. Um, only 
only the family can use this name for, for God. And so the people understood it. So God uses this covenantal name, this name uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, theologians uh, often will speak to the aseity of God, um, that it, he is independent, he's uncreated, he's utterly uh, underived from creation. He's above creation. This is a, the, the, tra- the idea of transcendence. And so when, when God says the transcendent God says, you have both the idea of God's transcendence, that he's, he is not his creation, he's above his creation, and then you have the notion of imminence, the nearness of God. But again, not imminence like a pantheist that confuses or confounds or amalgamate or blends God with creation, as if to say the chair is God, I'm God, your cat's God. That's heresy. So this is a God who is other than the creation. He's above it, but he comes near to us. And obviously it's in the person of of his son, Jesus Christ. So it's this transcendent God who comes near to his people through the mediator here, in this case, through the mediator herald. The Lord spoke further to Moses. Every time we read this, again, for us that are Bible-believing Christians, this is kind of a... This is, this is plain vanilla. This is a plain vanilla sermon. I think all of my sermons are plain, plain, plain vanilla. But this is a plain vanilla sermon, sermon for Bible believers. We believe that all of the Bible, we believe the doctrine of plenary, plenary inspiration. Plenary means all or full. So we believe from Genesis 1.1, clear through to Revelation chapter 22, is all inspired by God the Holy Spirit. There are no errors. It's infallible. It's an inerrant. It can't err, and it has no errors. God, the Holy Spirit, is the author. He uses penmen. He governs them such that there would be no errors, and everything is inspired. And so we have here God telling his people he wants them, through every passage of the Bible, to know this is from God. This is the divine, holy word of a divine, holy God. So there is no, sometimes we have a red letter Bible. I'm not against you if you have a red letter Bible. I think I probably have one at the house. Red letter Bible usually is the words of Jesus in red. They can be helpful, I suppose. But the whole Bible is a red letter Bible. It's, all, it's God. You can dip it in red. So it's all. There, there are no parts of the scripture that are more inspired than other parts of the scripture. There may be more parts of the scripture that are more significant or primary. Others may be subordinate, like the doctrine of soteriology, salvation is primary. The doctrine of ecclesiology is secondary or subordinate, but it's all inspired, if that makes sense. But with with these trumpet sounds, God will be speaking to his people, as it were. God wants his people to know that he is holy, that the mouthpiece Moses is holy, that those who make the trumpet sound, the priests, that they are holy, the trumpet itself is holy, but fundamentally the message is holy, and that the people of God themselves are holy, and that the directives are holy. This is in our day and age in which we live, in the church, um, and I suppose this is true, I, 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 I do... Sometimes I think, well, boy, you know, in the ages gone by, there was greater measures of fidelity, and maybe that's true. If you've ever read, read Philo, he is a Jewish historian at the time of Christ. We, society was, at the, at the time of Jesus Christ, society was an absolute train wreck. 
And so we look at society and think it's an absolute train wreck and we're correct. The reason it seems more of a train wreck now is because you can just click a button and you can see the train wreck from here to Timbuktu. I think it's always been a train wreck since Genesis 3, 1 through 8, but that, that's another sermon. God wants us to, to live upon the word in all of these directives. I mentioned it in my prayer, and this is what these, the cloud and the fire and the trumpet blasts. God wants his people to be a people according to the book. Sometimes Jews will say we're people of the book or Christians, Bible-believing Christians, which is redundant, I know. We should, be, we should be people of the book. But even more basic than this, when God says, I abide with my people, I want you to look to me, and I want you to listen to me and live upon me. God is teaching his people to live with a God consciousness, to consciously think, meditate, look to, live for, find our contentment in God. Everything should be God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy. Why you marry for God's sake, the way you vote for God's sake, why you do your religion for God. Everything has its reference to our God. Certainly things which are specifically religious, but all of the Christian life is religious. There's no part of the Christian life properly understood that's properly secular. Um, many years ago, a young woman in Tallahassee was talking about getting a tattoo, and, and I don't want to. Whether she, I don't think girls look pretty with tattoos, and if you're going to get one, don't get it on your neck because you'll never get a job. But, but she said it's my body. I can do it. And I was an elder on this session, and and she said it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. And I said, why? I said, well, I don't want to get into the whole business of whether you should have a tattoo or not. I don't think you should, but it's not your body. <laughs> It's not your body. Are you a Christian, young woman? Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, it's not your body. The skin belongs to Christ. Your eyes belong to Christ. Your hair belongs to Christ. Your hands belong to Christ. Your affections belong to Christ. But that's all of us. That's what all of these things teach. Now, I would argue this notion of look up and see God, live to hear God, take all of the direction of life from God's word, in all of life, consecrated as holy to God. Even though I think this is utterly plain vanilla Christianity, I think Bible-believing Christians, this should be like, everybody believes this. Everybody believes that we're, we're to live upon God and our life is to be a thank offering to God. However, I do believe that this notion of the primacy of the word, certainly, but certainly, certainly, the notion of living with a constant abiding God consciousness, which is this. I think that's radical for Christians. I think Christians, professing Christians, we are very good at compartmentalizing religion. We have Jesus or God in a little box. He's for like an hour on a Sunday morning, and if you're a rock star, he, you, he's for an hour in the morning, in an hour at night, and if you're a super rock star, you throw in another hour sometime in the middle of the week. But other than that, you get to live without thinking of God. No, 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 no. When would you see the cloud? All day, every day. When would you see the fire? All night, every night. When you're being taught to listen for the sound of God? All the time. There is nothing in our life that is to be secular. Everything about us is to be from God, for God, to God. That, 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 
Paul uses that language, I think, in the book of Romans, and he actually directs it towards Christ. And so that kind of a Christian is a vital, true Christian as opposed to a formalist. That's what these folks are being taught, the primacy of God, the God consciousness of God's people. Let's talk a little bit about the trumpets. We'll just walk through this kind of in a logical way, like the design of the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, the players of the trumpet, that kind of a thing. You'll get my notes, I think, on maybe tonight I'll send them out. Um, so let, let, let's look at the design of the trumpet. Verse 1, the Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, Make yourself two trumpets of silver, or of hammered work you shall make them. So he tells Moses, who is a mediator, and he's a mediator slash herald. And in, I put some posts on the Facebook post. I was not trying to be provocative, but no one, bought, no one bit for my little, I have a little test. I was, you know, what's that? My mind said the fi- spider to the fly. Uh, when people set you up, they want you to answer. And so I put a couple of Facebook posts out wanting to, my, my, said the spider to the fly. And I asked a question, can people love God the Father, but at the same time not deny God the Son? So obviously you hear the three great Abrahamic religions. I don't like using that phrase. Um, Can you approach God without a mediator? Can you come to God pleasingly, acceptably, without a mediator? Can you go straight to God the Father without going through God the Son? No, you cannot. So much for the three great Abrahamic religions. If there is no mediator, there is no accepted worship. Read 1 John chapter 2, read 1 John chapter 5. If you don't know and love and receive God the Son, you do not know and love and receive God the Father. It's only through a mediator. And so even principally, we're taught by the mediatorial work of Moses. He's, he's a type. God says, I'm not going to talk to the people. I'm going to talk to the people through you. That's the first Timothy chapter 5. No one, none of us, we don't, we don't come into the presence of God the Father directly. We come to the, through the work, the person and the work of the mediator, Jesus Christ. Read uh, Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 31. So it's the Son. We come to the Father through the Son in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And even the business of Moses being a mediator teaches us about the necessity of coming to God and hearing from God via a mediator. And I know that has some practical implications for uh, people that are not Christians, but I think what that should promote, um, excite us to do is to uh, evangelize them. So the general lessons, when we come to the business, he, he tells the mediator to tell the people, make two trumpets. I want two trumpets. He tells the people the kind of material he wants these trumpets to be, which is silver. And then God further says the method by which he wants them constructed. So an opposing method, I suppose you could pour a mold uh, of, uh, of silver and make a mold and make a trumpet via mold. But he doesn't want that. He wants two of them. He wants the material to be metal. He wants the metal to be silver. And he wants them to be hammered work. So, so no other uh, uh, way does he want this religious instrument to be constructed. This is part of the reason why I believe the doctrine called the regulative principle of worship as opposed to the normative principle of worship that the Lutherans believe and I'm not picking on the Lutherans. Um, I, what I know about the Lutherans could fill a thimble. But the regulative principle of worship says that God accepts in worship for religion 
only that which he prescribes. And so God says, I, this is exactly what I want, and anything other than this is unacceptable. That's the regulative principle of worship. The second commandment, if you look at the way our, our larger and shorter catechism exegetes the second commandment, that's also the basis of this regulative, we worship God through a mediator, he speaks to us through a mediator, and now here, with the very design, how he, what, what he wants, how he wants it constructed, what he wants it constructed of, who is going to use it, how they're going to use it, everything is very detailed. We've talked about this before. Sometimes folks say, well, you're, so, you're so persnickety in your religion. You think, oh, God is so precise and he only wants it precise. And I don't mean to say that we have to serve God in a precise way as believers. Other, otherwise, we're, we're, we, we are cast away and we're, we're unreceived. That's not true. But it, the only reason we are received is because Christ is a precise Christ. God only re, can only receive perfection. And so when God is saying, I want it exactly the way I want it, otherwise you're not accepted. Unless we had a Christ, we would be utterly undone. There would be no coming to God in Christ. There would be no hearing from God, loving God and obeying God and following God. Uh, we would be utterly undone. No one, there's a term that the, whole, uh, the Roman Catholics have a doctrine of, it's called supererogation. It means doing more than the moral law requires. And then the, for the people that do more than the moral law requires, which you cannot do, it gets placed into the treasury of merits. And when the magisterium of the church, through, through the giving of indulgences, it remits time in purgatory. But it's based on the doctrine of supererogation, doing more than the moral law requires. That's not possible. That is not possible. That is not possible. The only person that ever met the perfect requirements of a perfect God is our perfect Jesus. But we can't dumb down the requirements of a perfect God and thus the requirements of his perfect law. We keep the perfection, which this is teaching us implicitly, and then it drives us to a perfect Christ. So God is here saying, I define all of my, my religion, and all of it has to be precise. And again, at the end of it, if, you, if you're not driven to Christ, you would be driven to frustration. And so, in not, just the, not just the precision of the, um, uh, of the trumpets themselves. Think of the tabernacle. Have you ever walked through the tabernacle? Have you ever walked through the, the construction of the temple? Have you ever looked at Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, and then, what is it? One through seven, and then eight following. You have the sacrificers. No, excuse me, the sacrifices, and then Leviticus seven or eight. You have the sacrificers. Everything, everything. God is so fastidious. You think it ha- There's four coverings over the tabernacle. It has to be of this construction, of this length, this many pillars. Th- these folks have to carry this and not carry that. It's teaching us that God is a precise and a holy God, and he only receives that which is precise and holy. Thus, we need the Lord Jesus. That's what we're being taught, at least thematically. So the construction of the trumpets, and then now what God is doing is we're looking at the particular sounds. So there are a number of ways that God is directing his people through the sounding of these trumpets. Obviously, the one way that they are taught through the word, uh, explaining the trumpet sounds, 
If one trumpet is sounded, it means one thing. If two people use the two trumpets, it means another thing. And then there is another thing which is less visible to us in the English, but if you were a a Hebrew speaker, you would, and I am not, I'm less proficient, way less proficient with my Hebrew. I couldn't even use the word proficient when I use the word Hebrew, but I, I know enough to use a good commentator. And so the second way that God is directing his people through these trumpet blasts is the length of the blast. So one commentator um, interacts with the Hebrew verb tense, and I think the verb tense in Hebrew is stem form. There's kal, Q-A-L, it looks like Q-A-L, and that means a long trumpet blast. And there's another another verb tense, it's hiphal, H-I-P-H-I-L, and that's a short blast. So God's teaching his people, if there's one blast, it means one thing. If there's two, uh, two trumpets, it means another thing. And then if there's a long blast, it means something. And then if there's a short staccato blast, it means another thing. And then obviously, the third more obvious way is the number of blasts. Is it one or is it uh, two? So we have the trumpet design, God governs, the trumpet sound, God governs, and then we have the trumpet players. All of this is teaching that, 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 um, that regulative principle of worship, but it also teaches the holiness of God. The only people prescribed by God to play these trumpets are the ironical priests. So... I know people think, well, what's the big deal? I could just, everybody could do whatever they want to do in holy religion. And I realize in the New Testament epoch, we have a greater degree of freedom and I would argue a greater degree of spirituality. There is no book of Leviticus in the New Testament. I I agree with that. But it is not true that um, there's no propriety in worship. In the Old Testament, the only people that were prescribed and therefore accepted by God to blow these trumpets were the priests. Uh, you remember, was it Uzzah that touched the ark? And what did God do to Uzzah? I think he killed him. And what was that all about? He was not a Levite. He had no right to touch the ark. And so you have an unconsecrated man touching the holiness of God. He has to die. And when you ha- what you have here is a-, a holy priest playing this holy instrument, and again, telling the people of God that holy God is among them, and they are a holy people in God's word to them, in directives to them, are holy. Sometimes we use the phrase, um, there's no fear of God before they're ours. What entity does the judgment of God begin with first? What does the Bible say? Peter? It, judgment begins with, go ahead and finish it. That's exactly right. So judgment begins with the house of God first. So you say, what about the poor unbeliever outside? Well, they're, they're second. Who gets it first? We get it first. Because too much is given, much is required. I would argue a little bit that much of the professing church, when you look at them religiously or morally, they don't look any different than the world. Maybe they could squeak out an hour on Sunday, but mostly, mostly no. Most professing Christians don't go to church. And most, most professing Christians certainly don't read their Bible. Most, most, most certainly don't pray with any kind of regularity. They just were born to some kind of professing formalist formalist Christian, and so they're Christians. And so if you were to say, if you were to look at them and look at their life, is there anything particularly Christ-like about it? 
Is there anything particularly otherworldly about it? And you would have to conclude what? I don't, I don't think so. They, they don't know that God is holy. And therefore, there's no fear of God before their eyes. When we think of the holiness, what did God's people, really God's people, I think of Isaiah, I think of John, uh, um, the Apostle John, when they saw the holiness of God, what was the response of even a believer loved by God in Christ? What did they do? They fell down. God wants his people to say, I am a holy God, and I am among you, and you are a holy people, and my directives to you are holy directives, and you're to live holy lives. And so you think, well, this is kind of terrifying. I think this would be terrifying. So we, we think, wouldn't this just be really neat? How did the people of God respond on Mount Sinai when God said, hi, I'm going to talk to you? They were absolutely terrified. The holiness of God, if we could comprehend the holiness of God a little bit better, um, we would live radically transformed lives. Our marriages would look markedly different than the unbeliever. Our speech would look markedly different than the unbeliever. Our entertainment, the way that we do our finances, everything, the way that we use our bodies, everything would be markedly different than the unbeliever because it would be a response to, um, to this holy God. Um, and then we would have fear and reverence and awe before a God. So the trumpet designs, the trumpet sounds, the trumpet sounders. Here in this passage, we have two priests. Um, and I don't think it's the same priest playing the trumpets, but the reason there's only two priests, uh, priests playing is there's only two trumpets. By the time you come to um, the temple, when the, the, the tabernacle is temporary, but it's mobile, and then the temple um, is also temporary, but it's not mobile, and it's, it's, it's typological of Christ, who is essentially the temple, um, he's the antitype of that, and he's the feast and the priest and the sacrifices, and it's the gospel. But by the time you come to the time of the temple, the Holy Spirit inspires, I think, is it Solomon? Solomon goes from having two trumpet players to 120, but here we have two, um, and teaching the holiness of God. So th- there are four distinct messages by the various combinations of um, uh, trumpet sounds, whether there's one or two, or whether one man plays and, or two men play, whether it's a short blast or a long blast or what have you. There are four particular lessons. So they're, they're, not, they're not very um, tricky, but again, they're explained by the word of God. The first is to, um, to call a communal assembly. Look at verse 3. So it's a, a calling of all the people. This is the cal form of the word blow. That means the long sound. When you hear a long blast of the trumpet, all of the people are to gather at the, the tent um, of meeting or the tabernacle outside. You remember the tent of meeting, sometimes people think, wouldn't it be cool to worship in the tabernacle? Well, you can't really. You have, what, a couple of million people. The tabernacle is 15 feet wide by 45 feet long by 15 feet high. How many people are you going to get in that tent? Not two million. So the people that are coming, the only body in the tent is the priests and the priestly helpers. The people are outside. So they come to outside. If there's this one blast... All of the people come for some communal, I can't say civil because everything is religious, but it's a communal purpose. Come together. Human beings, some of us are constitutionally more prone to be loners. 
Um, or maybe a better, some of us have our social needs met by fewer people. Um, so I don't think anyone is the lone wolf per se, but we're not created to be the lone wolf. We are created as social creatures. It's a reflection of the image of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. John 17, there's an inter-Trinitarian love relationship. And so when God says, I want you to come together as the people of God, it teaches us about the communal nature of the church. It is us and Jesus. We come to the cross one person at a time. Charles Spurgeon said there's two things that a person has to do alone. He has to do his believing alone, and he has to do his dying alone. So no one can believe for you, and no one can die for you. Uh, but it, it is not true because of the personalness of our faith that it denies the communal aspect of our faith. So with the one blast, all of the people gather. With the two blasts, God wants the leaders. And by this, we're taught some of the ecclesiology, the, 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 the polity, the church government of God's people. Obviously, in the Old Testament, they're tribal leaders. But because God places us in societies, and there are three societies. You know what the societies that God places all human beings in? The first and foremost is what? The human family. And the family is constituted the nuclear family of a, of a, a, a father, a husband, and a wife, and a father, and a mother. And a husband is a male, and a, a wife is a female. Right? <laughs> right? And then in God's providence, if he gives them children, that's a nuclear family. And then obviously with our uncles and aunts and grandparents and so on. So you have the society of the family. That's the first family. And then you have the society, we'll call it the state, and then the church. But the family is the seed, is the seminary, the provider of those two other social entities. And when God places us into a social entity, there's always government in it. There's always a, a form to it. Someone is the leader. Someone is the helper. Someone is the superior. Someone is the, the subordinate in a good sense. And so God has structure. Uh, anarchy is against the Bible. And so here we look at the, the, the church is a communal entity. The church is a governed entity. And God says, come together for this purpose. And then the second way is, um, is uh, when God would... Um, would blow the trumpets for the people to uh, break camp. And this is, uh, look at verse 5 and 6. We go from that cal form of, of the word to blow in Hebrew to a hiffel. So we go from a long sh uh, 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 trumpet blast to a short trumpet blast. And now the people of God are being taught it's time to break camp, to pack up the camp, and to uh, uh, arrange themselves to march out in order. And so in verse 5, um, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. And then verse 6, the camps that are set on the south side shall pitch out. So if they hear one short blast, east, all of those camps uh, start to march out. And then uh, two, the camps on the south. If you look at verse 22, and then 24 and 25, and you were to compare it with numbers 2 and 3, you would find this. You have omitted the north side and um, the west side. However, when you come to, say, 22, and then if you were to reference back to uh, Numbers chapter 2, the third group is under Ephraim. And so even though the, the, it would be another, the inference is a, a three short blasts would be Ephraim and his crew would be moving out third, 
and then four short blasts would be the other uh, tribes moving out uh, finally. And it means to uh, get ready to, um, to march. So you remember the book of Numbers records from they're out of captivity uh, two years, and they've got 38 years march to bring them right to, um, to the borders of the, of the promised land. So it, it, it constitutes a 38-year pilgrimage, one whole generation, enough to wipe out the faithless uh, generation of, um, of spies, and uh, they were going to die in the wilderness, um, along with the men of that age. Uh, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 talks about that. We're, the people of God are being told to, to listen to God for directives to march and, and to live as a pilgrim. This is one of the themes in my, and you know if you've come to this church twice, there are common themes that just I'm passionate about because I think it's foundational to the Christian life. One is that the Christian life is, um, is a pilgrimage. So we are, we are pilgrim people. Um, Baptists sing it. Um, Presbyterians don't usually sing it, um, but and I think they're correct. Uh, the world is not my home. I'm just a doing what? I'm just passing through. And you hear these songs, Beulah Land. I'm going to Beulah Land. In the book of uh, Isaiah, Beulah means married. Hefzeba means pleasantness. So we are we are we are we are just pilgrims. This is a Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 12. We are pilgrims. And so when we look around and we see wars and rumors of wars and then we, all of the political machinations, it is super anxiety producing. It is anxiety. I mean, I don't know how you, it doesn't become anxiety producing. I guess the best thing to do is to shut it off. But we would help ourselves if we would remind ourselves, wait a minute. We should be the best citizens we should be. We should be the absolute best citizens for Christ that we, we should be. So I'm not for living in a commune and rejecting our, 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 our social responsibilities. We should be the best Christian we should be where God places us. But we shouldn't be inordinately anxious because we're pilgrims. This world is not our home. We're going to the celestial city. What's the second most popular book next to the Bible? I think it's Pilgrim's Progress, I think. Remember Pilgrim? He's leaving the city of what? Destruction, and he's going to the celestial city. And again, I don't mean we deny our social responsibility. I think we should be the best husbands, best workers, best students, best doctors, best citizens. But we shouldn't be inordinately concerned because we're pilgrims. And we need to hear that we're pilgrims because sometimes when things are nice, we think, wow, this is really not so bad. I would like to make this world my home. But God in his providence ordinarily will persuade us to um, not try to make the world our home and that to eagerly desire um, the completion of our pilgrimage and the arrival at our heavenly home. And if you have attained any age, you know what I mean. So you have um, the communal gathering, our required uh, um, march uh, uh, sounding, and then you have the third reason for the trumpets is found in verse 9, that there's going to be a battle. So not only is God teaching his people that we are a pilgrim people, he's teaching his people that we're a fighting people. Now, I maintain all the time um, that we are, not, we, are not, we, we, are, we are not lions and tigers. We are to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christians are to be love-like, uh, lamb-like 
in dove-like. I'm not saying that you can't play football or be a tough person. You can. But my notion, my idea is, or my understanding is, that, that we are, we, the fighting that we do is not with bombs and bullets. I know there are people that argue for this, that Christians, you, if you're a Christian, you can be a policeman, you can be a civil magistrate, you can be a military man, and in a just war, you can take human life justly. So you can. And in the Reformation, there were, were men like Luther that said, you can glory in your ability as a military man, which is stunning to us. Um, and so as a former pacifist, to hear these kind of things, it was stunning to me. So we're not saying that when we're, we're, we're fighting people that we're necessarily saying fighting with um, weapons and so on. The kind of fighting people we are, as we are pilgrims, is a spiritual fighting people. We fight on our knees. Um, we fight with the word of God. We, we fight in reliance upon the spirit of God. Many years ago, someone said, what about this and what about that? And they were getting around to actually picking up a gun. And I never, 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 never. I know there is one guy I know that writes about when a Christian can take part in a, in a righteous revolution. I do not have, I don't understand that. So if you understand it, good on you. I don't. And I'm not picking on this one brother. I don't see it. I don't see it. Jesus says, if they persecute you in one city, means they're going to hurt you physically. What does he say to do? I think he says, run away. Again, if you have your favorite theologian that says how you can hurt people, I don't know. I don't see it um, in Scripture, me personally. We fight spiritually. We're a pilgrim people. We are a spiritually fighting people. And we use the word of God. We take every thought captive. Again, I'm not against just war. I'm not against self-defense. I'm not against capital punishment. They're all biblical. But you understand what I'm saying. So you have that, a call to a battle. When will the fighting be over for the Christian? It's when we have the last blast. So the last blast of the trumpet is the fourth reason. It's for some gathering. It, they, they used it for all of the Old Testament feasts. Depending on how you number the feasts in the Old Testament, you either have seven of them or you have five of them. It's the same feast, but sometimes they, they stick two together. Like if you separate um, the Passover from the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, you have two. And some guys say it's really one. But be that as it may, let's say five. There are five Old Testament feasts, three are pilgrim feasts that you're required to go to. And every feast, there are these holy, what is the word? Is it hog? I think the underlying uh, Hebrew word is joy. Is these times of great joy. The, the, um, the, the consecration of a king. Something joyous is going on. Beloved, what will we hear when Christ sends back his angelic servants to take us from this place to come to our heavenly home? What will we hear? I think it will be a trumpet. So we're a pilgrim people. We are a, a fighting people. But we're, we are a people that are destined to spend eternity in an estate of infinite joy and infinite bliss and it will be the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds 
of the sky with power and great glory. He shall send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They'll gather together his elect from the four winds, one from the end of the sky. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory, and we're going to be forever with the Lord at the sound of the trumpet. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.